0: Hello, and welcome to the Is Inflation Over? episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. Elizabeth, we are about to find out did not eat eggs for breakfast this morning. Emily is going to tell us that it's because eggs are expensive. We are going to talk about the price of eggs and inflation more broadly, which seems to be coming down, which is good news. It's not coming down in eggs. We are going to talk about gas stoves and induction. We are going to talk about Columbia Business School and how much it has managed to contrive to spend on its new campus. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on... Noma, tasting menus, and the economics of fine dining, it's all coming up on Slate Money. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like
2: the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply.
0: Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So we had a negative inflation print on Thursday morning when the inflation numbers came out. Inflation went at... Prices, consumer prices actually went down month on month. It looks like maybe, Emily, is inflation is over, except for those of us who like eggs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that's, that's it. End the segment right there. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, on Thursday last week, the CPI numbers came out and they showed inflation cooling. I mean, prices are still elevated, but they're... Not elevated as much, but in the numbers, <laughs> buried in the numbers is egg prices, which are up 59% year over year and rose 11% from November to December, um, mostly because of avian flu. So many chickens have died this year, you guys, Because or this, yeah, this year, in the past year, we'll say, because it's 2023 now. It's a little confusing. So many chickens have died. Forty-four million chickens have been killed. Well, they say they say the chickens have been depopulated.
0: Depopulated? Is is that the term of art? Yeah. So they're not like getting the flu and dying of the flu. They're getting the flu and then the farmers are like, You've got the flu. If you have the flu, you're not laying eggs. If you're not laying eggs, all you are is a waste of bird feed. So I'm going to depopulate you.
2: Well, it's also this is contagious, so they have to they have to kill them. RIP chickens.
1: Yes. And it's not like, yeah, it would be like if someone in your family got COVID and then the government was like, well, (laughs) you're all going to die now and just killed you all.
0: I have to say, this is my other favorite part of this story is the chart of the hen to human ratio in the United States, which is apparently at a 15 year low right now. And I love the fact that the United States has a hen to human (laughs) ratio. But we get through, what is it, like 300 eggs a year or something on average? We Americans?
1: I believe it. And killing all these chickens has just decreased the egg supply month to month by about 7.5%, according to the New York Times. So there's shortages in some supermarkets right now. Not only are the eggs more expensive, there's fewer eggs to go around. And I feel like, I mean, eggs are the cheapest... One of the cheapest proteins that people buy, like everyone is used to them being extremely cheap. You know, like they used to not long ago be like a dollar thirty nine a dozen.
2: Yeah, they were a buck thirty nine in January, and in November they were three fifty nine for twelve crazy eggs. Yeah,
0: Th- those of us who you know feel bad for the chickens and insist on be- buying organic free range eggs have never paid. Anything like that. I feel like the, the high-end eggs haven't gone up in price as much as the low-end eggs.
1: It's all high-end now. But, I mean, do we want to talk more broadly about why inflation has fallen minus the eggs?
0: Well, yeah, the big picture is absolutely that inflation, it seems to be clear now, was something that happened very much in, like, the middle of 2022 after Russia invaded Ukraine. It hasn't really been been a thing for about six months now. Um it's still showing up if you look at year-on-year prices, because it's still, you know, some of the inflationary months were still within the last 12 months. And so that's why the headline 12-month inflation rate is still a mildly scary, 6.5%. But it's coming down fast. And if you look at where inflation is over the past month, or over the past six months, it's completely benign at this point. Um as for the why. We can speculate the causality is highly complex, but you have to probably give the Fed some credit, right?
1: I don't know. I I wrote a piece this week and I convinced myself that actually the Biden administration did a lot to bring down inflation um, around energy prices because it opened up the strategic petroleum reserve, pushed out a lot of oil that way, and I think is recognized for having pushed gas prices down a lot.
0: Sure. But if we look at if we look at core inflation, which excludes food and energy, that was very high. (laughs) It's come down. And I think you can thank the Fed for that, um, partly because of the effect it had on the markets. Right. Because, you know, we had the new inflationary that we had the new discount rate in the markets. You know, long term rates went up quite a lot. That meant that high duration assets like tech stocks went down quite a lot um and that then caused a bunch of sort of cost cutting in corporate america that basically put an end to any incipient wage price spiral
1: that's true and i mean one of the bummers to me is that wages have not kept pace with inflation and food prices are still pretty elevated even not even just eggs but a lot of the prices so for you know for most people you're kind of in a better a worse position now um not the worst position. You know, most people still have jobs. The job market is still healthy, all that. But your dollar's not going as far. You didn't. Your wages essentially fell. And the cost of stuff went up.
0: Although I I have to say, like, as, you know, a consumer, one of the amazing things to me has always been how unbelievably cheap eggs are. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they are amazing things. They are incredibly delicious. Like, if they with some delicacy that cost $35 each, I would still spend $35 on an egg because eggs are just amazing things and they I, I love to cook them and they are great. I wouldn't eat them nearly as often, obviously, but um, the idea that you could buy a dozen eggs for a couple of bucks always just was this incredible piece of um, like capitalist, success story to me but it also i think reflected a bunch of incredibly horrible conditions for chickens so if they go if if the replacement hens are treated better and the prices stay high i i don't know maybe that's a trade-off worth worth making
2: i have a personal opinion that american breakfast is too heavily dominated by eggs and pastries so if this breaks big eggs stronghold on breakfast (laughs) <laughs> I won't be that disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: what what what's your what's your beef with eggs? Elizabeth? I just am
2: ambivalent about them. I, I I don't I don't not like them. I just you know it's it's too much of a a part of American breakfast.
0: Maybe you've just had too many because they've been so cheap. <laughs> you've been over inundated with eggs.
1: Possible is breakfast a scam, Elizabeth? I, it might be. I, I I'm I would go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> I do think brunch is a scam, and that paying fifteen dollars for eggs at brunch is absurd. I'll
0: well, say that not not if they come with free booze.
1: Well, then you're paying for the the booze. But there's a situation where you'd be asked to pay, you know, seventeen dollars for an omelet, knowing that eggs are. I mean, they used to be two bucks a dozen. It's just I no, I'm not doing that. I refuse.
0: So we are going to talk about restaurant economics and Slate Plus because NOMA closed. Yes. Or NOMA announced that it was closing this week. So we're going to do a bit of ranting about restaurant economics. But I do think this is a good segue to the whole question of, you know, the way that restaurants cook their food, which is still overwhelmingly on gas stoves.
1: Oh, dun, dun, dun.
0: Gas stoves, for reasons I don't entirely understand, became a major topic of conversation this week. Um, I think there was one errant interview from one member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and as our colleague Matt Phillips wrote, like there is nothing that Republicans love more than to find some new thing they can jump on for for culture wars. And so suddenly now gas stoves are part of the culture war and like the nanny state wants to take away your gas stoves and so on and so forth but i think this is a good reminder like first of all let's just be very clear about this the nanny state does not want to take away anyone's gas stoves if you have a gas stove that's fine literally no one is suggesting that it should be taken away um but number two this is a good reminder that things that people grew up with and felt totally benign and wonderful can actually be bad and uh, as society evolves we can learn about these things and try and get better and gas stoves are bad especially for small children they create all manner of nasty particulate pollution they cause asthma and in the grand scheme of things not to mention carbon emissions in the grand scheme of things if and when we move away from gas stoves and towards the wonderful utopia that is induction that is something devoutly to be wished.
1: Yeah. And and let's just back up and explain in case people haven't been following. What happened was Richard Trumpka Jr., who's the son of this like big union guy who passed away recently, was interviewed by Bloomberg. And he's a member, he's a commissioner on the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And he said he's been on uh, an anti-gas stove kind of mission. Since at least last year, there was a video of him going around saying similar stuff, but he told Bloomberg, yeah, a ban is on the table. And that set off just a rage cycle, as Felix explained. Um, and I learned, I mean, I really didn't know that gas stoves were a danger. Apparently, a new research just published found more than 12% of childhood asthma cases attributable to gas stove use. I had no idea. Um my daughter had asthma and we had a gas stove and I was like, oh, and made me rethink because I don't like our electric stove now, but maybe it's a good thing that we have an electric stove now.
0: Electric stoves are either terrible or wonderful. And if they work by heating up the stovetop, they are terrible. And if they work via induction they are wonderful
1: can you tell people about induction
0: it's basically it's basically the classic connection between magnetism and electricity right because if you if you remember back to your like high school physics those two things are like orthogonal to each other and you can convert one to the other so basically if you have a ferrous um anything anything magnetic basically if it's made of iron or steel and you excite it using magnetism then that will it will then heat up so what happens if you put a iron pot on a induction stovetop and you and you get it all like magnetically excited the pot heats up but nothing else heats up the stovetop itself does not heat up What? Um, there are these wonderful pictures you can see of people like let's go back to the eggs here of people like cutting a um a skillet in half and putting the skillet on uh um on an induction stovetop and like cracking an egg into the skillet and the half of the egg which is in the skillet is like perfectly beautiful and the half of the egg which is on the stovetop is completely uncooked because the, the stovetop does not heat up the only thing that heats up is the pan you can control the heat very very minutely to have incredibly low simmers or incredibly powerful rolling boils anything in between and it's just it's a glorious wonderful thing and i have been cooking on induction for the past seven years or so um and of all of the amazing household gadgets that i have bought over my lifetime i'm going to come out and say that my induction stove top is by far the greatest
1: is it more expensive than electric or gas
0: yes but it's coming down. Mm. You can buy an induction cooking thing very cheaply now. So it, it, it's come down a lot in price, but I don't think it's quite as cheap as the alternatives yet, Yet, but it probably will be soon.
1: So to tell people you can't have gas and then push them to electric and induction, you're, you are kind of pushing them to higher-priced items.
0: Yeah, electric stoves are, are not more expensive than gas stoves. And it, less than half of America has gas stoves right like there's millions and millions of households out in there out out in america right now that don't don't have any natural gas hookups at all and they've you know haven't been out there sort of calling up their senators and complaining they don't have a gas hookup they just have electric stoves
2: yeah it's also it's it's a it's a weather issue to some extent it's you know i grew up in the deep south where nobody had gas heating because you just wouldn't you know central air and uh heat and so nobody had gas stoves either. You just, everybody had electric.
0: Right. If, you, if, you're, if your mm-hmm. house isn't connected to gas for heating, it's less likely to be connected to gas for cooking. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like, as I say, no one is trying to ban these stoves. If you have a amazing wolf stove and you get this really high flame and you can do high heat, what cooking on it, that's like all power to you. And you will be able to continue doing that for many decades to come. But certainly in New York, um, from now on, New construction is not allowed to install such things. So if you want to have your big grand wolf stove, you're gonna to have to buy a house or an apartment that has one rather than buying a brand new condo which won't be allowed to have one.
2: I would replace our gas stove with induction
0: if, if it wasn't so expensive.
1: Oh, one more question about induction. Do you need to get a certain kind of pan you mentioned? iron before
0: yes it needs to be ferrous the only the only pan pots and pans you can use are ones that are magnetic
1: i am a little bit on the side of of the angry conservatives
0: <laughs> i am a little bit of on the side of the angry conservatives it's one of those things that like you never really expect <laughs> emily to say but i want you i, I want to hear where you're going with this
2: i mean it's like if you want to give your kid asthma give your kid asthma.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, I don't know. Is it that bad? I haven't read the research paper. I only read the summaries of the research paper in the news coverage. It does sound bad. I don't want anyone to get asthma. It's 12%. I mean, just the politics right now is so polarized. Why are we making an issue out of stoves? The same could be said of straws. Like, just don't feed the beast, you know what I mean? And I kind of feel like, just leave it be for now. We have other things, right?
0: I mean, I feel I feel like we have a big problem with public health interventions in general in this country. And I think I've mentioned this in the past on the show, that incredibly valuable public health interventions, like putting iodine in salt or putting fluoride in the water, are the kind of things that conservatives would be up in arms about if they were attempted right now and would probably never happen. Um, If you look at things like attempts by governments in sub-Saharan Africa to change the way that people light their homes and move away from dirty carbon fuels to solar lights and that kind of stuff, the public health Implications of that are enormous and you really put years and sometimes decades onto people's lives by changing the fuels that people use inside their homes. Burning carbon inside your home as a way of either cooking or heating your home is really dangerous and really unhealthy and you shouldn't do it. And it's atavistic and it dates back millennia and, You know, in, in sort of a clean, sleek, modern world, like we can save lives by not doing that. And, you know, we're not going to enter a world in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes or even our grandchildren's lifetimes where people don't have like open fireplaces. They're lovely things. People like them. But they're not something you live with every day, right? Cooking on gas is something you do every day and it adds up over time and it's not good for you.
2: Well, the conservative heuristic is government should never do anything. So any kind of intervention, no matter how valuable, is always going to be portrayed by a certain segment as, uh, you know, nanny state policy, even if it makes total sense.
1: Yeah. But it just seems like there are other nanny state policies to prioritize right now. Like what? The switch over to electric vehicles, perhaps.
0: And by the way, like the switch over, one of the big public health improvements that comes with the switch over to electric vehicles um, has nothing to do with carbon emissions. And is entirely a function of the particulate emissions Mm -hmm. that they come down basically to zero when you move to an EV. And that's, you know, if you're in um, some kind of inner city area with a lot of freeways in it, you know, like the South Bronx or somewhere like that, the, Particular emissions from those freeways are really, really bad for public health. And if those mm-hmm. cars all become EVs, then that will massively reduce the amount of asthma and other illnesses that you see in that population. And, you know, having a gas stove is basically the same. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. It's about those particulate emissions.
1: Okay. Also, you got to get away from sticks and move to carrots with stuff like this. Like, and, and the administration has done some of that. There's money in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, to subsidize people's purchase of electric stoves. Yeah. I don't know about induction, but induction, just hearing us talk about it, it just, if I was a conservative... In a red state, I'd be like, listen to those liberals talk about their fancy stoves (laughs) and getting their new cookware. This is the latte-sipping elite trying to shove, you know, blah, blah, blah down our throats. Liberals are going to make us all buy new pots. Yeah, they're just going to make you buy new pots. (laughs) How dare they? (sighs)
0: Sigh.
3: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: What's next? Uh,
1: Columbia. <gasps> oh, your favorite. Felix has been dying to talk about this, listeners. Dying.
0: Okay, so I I may or may not have put out a tweet um, you did. <laughs> <laughs> about about this essay by a chap named James Russell in the New York Times. Um, calling it an early contender for worst critical essay of the 2020s and I think we'll 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 try and put a link in the show notes so you can read it yourself and and um, see for yourself what you think of this. The headline is at Columbia's 600 million dollar business school comma time to rethink capitalism and then the subhead is, On the developing Manhattanville campus, the architecture of Della and Renfro reinforces a social movement in business education to do good as well as make money. So the entire thesis of this article, which is 2,000 words long, is basically that you can spend $600 million on a new business school and do clever things with staircases and that is going to be an effective way to re <laughs> to change the way that capitalism functions in america um which is just so ludicrous on its face but like i want to know because i don't want this to be a, a just a complete felix fan like you guys read this article did did this article make you just see red in the same way or did you kind of like nod along with it sometimes
1: Oh no! It it made it was crazy. It was like <laughs> here is this very very expensive building, and the architecture is very special, and this is part of the business school's efforts to do good. It didn't it didn't track at it all. quoted
0: for me. Glenn Hubbard as like, oh yeah, the idea behind Columbia re- Business School is we're going to rethink capitalism and make it less rapacious, and you're like. Glenn Hubbard, do you remember him from Inside Job, being like, "Give me, give it your best shot," and being like the, you know, the rapacious capitalist. Like it, it's the weirdest article, and they never really talk about the budget of this thing, which you know, six hundred million dollars. If you work it out, works out to like one thousand two hundred and twenty dollars per square foot, just on construction costs. Like they, they, that's like not including the land. Um, if you look up the cost of like building class A office buildings in New York City, they top out at like 830. It's like a 50% premium over like the most expensive construction costs that you can find in New York. How is it that some like uptown nonprofit has found so much money for this?
1: Well, I mean, the business school makes, makes money. It's like one of the few areas of the nonprofit that's like, doing really well is that not correct business schools are a profit center for most universities is my understanding
0: they 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 are very price insensitive the business school can charge a huge amount of money for its mbas um meanwhile its costs are you know a relatively small number of professors who can teach pretty large classes and be relatively productive in that sense um one, one of I, I did the math a few different ways, but one of the um, ratios here is that this business school, if you work it out in terms of, like, how much does it cost per professor's office, it's $4 million per professor.
1: I mean, it's a nice building.
0: It's not, though.
1: <laughs> like, this is the oh, other no. thing.
0: <laughs> it looks like, you know, like... Have you guys ever driven around Southern California, you know, places like Irvine, California or Costa Mesa or Laguna Beach or places like that and they have those kind of strip mall office parks with random software company logos on them. It looks like that. It looks like it looks like an exurban, like a kind of like weirdly suburban satellite office of some software company somewhere you know and you see them all over America and they all look kind of shiny and kind of okay and kind of bland but there's nothing from the outside about these buildings that screams like super premium amazing like I I I don't have any beef with with Liz Diller and Diller Scafidio but this is not their best work it really isn't
2: there's nothing really aesthetically about it that stands out like, how would you describe how would you describe it aesthetically? See, this is where
1: the difference between you and I, Felix, will really come through. Is in my description of architecture, <laughs> it has a lot of windows <laughs> <laughs> that that face out into the neighborhood, which was a big selling point in the piece because the residents of the area, Manhattanville, where Columbia is, are very poor and you know there's always tension between the university and the surroundings and I guess the previous iteration of the business school it was kind of more like walled off you know like from the from the plebes and this has a lot of windows and it's very open and you know you could see out into the neighborhood and there's like zigzaggy staircases or something something there's more interactions between faculty and staff something something I mean to my eye, as an untrained eye, you know, as just a poor, basic lady. It just looks like (laughs) a nice place to go, it's kind of bright and shiny. I went to Columbia for graduate school for a year and like every time I intersected with the business school, it was just like a completely different vibe than from what I was doing. It was just like very shiny.
0: But that was the old business school, right? Which they were complaining about in this piece.
1: But the vibe of of the school and of the students is similar to what I'm seeing in this building, which is like completely different from what you'd expect from a university. It's like very modern, like where you would go to work and everyone is very kind of loud and they're like not dressed like students. And it, you know what I mean?
2: I think we have to actually read a couple of lines from the story so that you, you really get the sense of the argument they're trying to make.
0: We can definitely read James Russell's own description of the architectural merit of these things and this is the lead by the way one zigs the other zags one teases the passerby with bands of translucent glass wrapping a core of clear windows the other with floors angled in and out a gentle architectural mambo <laughs> what i mean there's are certainly words
2: there's uh my my favorite is the description of the stairs So the appearing (laughs) wraith-like, appearing wraith-like behind the glass stairways both wind over and around themselves like crinkly strands of DNA as they ascend full height. These are what the architects, working with FX Collaborative Architecture Firm, called network stairs. Twisting through ceiling surfaces curved and warped to accommodate them, they beg to be used.
0: okay so first of all this is this is one thing that we should talk about in like in all seriousness if you're going to build a state-of-the-art building in 2021 i think they basically built it um and you're going to talk about caring about the community you have to care about inclusion and architecting an entire business school around stairs has obvious implication in terms of like who feels included and who feels excluded and a friend of mine actually tells me that in one of these two buildings there are two buildings um there are the elevator doesn't go to the ground floor you have to kind of like take the stairs up to get to the elevator and if you you know are a wheelchair user or something it's really difficult to get around these buildings
1: wow that's that's a really good point that's hugely uninclusive
0: the other thing we should also mention is that the two buildings are both named after 79 year old billionaires one of one of them is named after henry kravis the other one is named after david geffen and henry kravis in particular is the classic avatar of rapacious capitalism you know the private equity titan who buys and sells so this idea that like Better capitalism through architecture is almost like belied off the bat by the sponsors of these buildings.
1: I mean, business school is all about capitalism, not better capitalism, just straight up yeah. capitalism. That's what it is. I, I think it's interesting, this effort to say no, where it's a better kind of capitalism. It's win-win capitalism. Um, we're going to do, we're going to make money and do good. Like that's this new, I don't know, whitewashing.
0: But the idea that you could do that through architecture with is cool just stairs. completely bizarre to me, you know? And with and like, like, I don't understand whether this is like some bizarre spin that the architects came up with. And then somehow James Russell like fell for or whether people actually believe it.
2: I think this is also just a hyperbolic design writing, where you have to find something interesting to say about the building, and there needs to be an underlying philosophy to everything. And um, to me, this reads like a lot of architectural criticism. It's just weird when it's in the middle of the times.
0: There are none of the trappings of schools that aggrandize the MBA aspirant as a master <laughs> of the universe in waiting, grand atriums, leather-chair lounges, chandelier-festooned ceilings. The buildings are seen as tools, Renfro said. They are about problem-solving and being in the world. I'm like I I've been to a handful of business schools over my career and I'm not sure I've ever seen a chandelier festooned ceiling in a business school anywhere. Maybe maybe you guys are going to write in and say, oh, yeah, I went to business school, which was full of chandelier festooned <laughs> ceilings. But, like, I don't know. Have you guys ever seen one? No. 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 It's this weird thing, right, is that when you run out of toys to buy for yourself, you know, you're David Geffen, you have your mega yacht, and you are never going to be able to spend all of your money. The only thing left to do with your money... is is to, you know, aggrandize yourself by slapping your name on architecture around the world. And when you're a billionaire, you think that billionaires are good and that things that create billionaires are good. And so what you do is you wind up throwing money at business schools and you wind up with very rich and well-endowed business schools, not only at Columbia, but any other top business school in the world. You know, it finds it relatively easy to raise money, especially if that money um, buys some kind of a name, a naming right.
1: This is why you need to tax rich people more, because when they choose what to do with their money for charity or philanthropy, they wind up giving it to business schools that don't need it. So we need to tax them more to pay for our gas stove replacements, and that would be much better.
0: Exactly, like like when whenever anyone talks about like oh you know. The charitable tax deduction is great because what we're doing is, you know, the, the rich people are much better at helping society through their donations than the government is at spending money to help society. You're like, no, give rich people their druthers and they wind up giving money to business schools, which really don't need it.
1: vanity projects. One more question, Felix, Elizabeth, I know where Felix stands on like journalism school, for example, I believe he believes it's a waste of money where do you guys stand on business schools? Do you think you need to go to business school to be a business person or to cover business? Are they worthwhile schools? Like, thoughts? I think it it depends on what you want to do.
2: I mean, there there is specialized knowledge that you can acquire in business school, especially in the realm of finance, that, you know, it it would be difficult to just absorb uh, in, in a job. But If you want to start a company, no, you don't need to go to business school.
0: Wait, wait. So you're saying for entrepreneurs, you don't need it, but for who does need it?
2: You know, if you're going into a specialized finance where you need to understand, um, you know, more technical skills, then, you know, you need to be trained in those things somewhere. And business schools, you offer that. So it depends on what you want to do, I think.
0: Well, I mean, so there's CUNY famously has a a quantitative finance degree that, you know, everyone is, is in huge demand, and and is a vocational qualification in that sense. And um, like NYU Stern Business School also does like a deep dive into like financial mathematics and that kind of thing. I think that's relatively rare, actually, at business schools. So I think the overwhelming majority of MBAs and overwhelming overwhelming majority of business schools don't teach. That kind of thing, you know, they'll teach you the basics of, you know, balance sheets and income statements and accounting and and that kind of stuff, but nothing particularly specialised. It's not. I don't see an MBA as a kind of vocational qualification that you need in order to get a certain type of job, like a like a medical degree, say, or a law degree. Um, it's almost impossible to think of any job where. Everybody in that job has an MBA, right? It's very easy to think of a job where everybody in that job has a medical degree or a law degree, um, but so it's not—it's not a necessary qualification for pretty much anything. It is something that is valued by certain types of employer, um, often as a signaling mechanism, and often when it comes from a relative, a relatively small number. Of schools. And where I stand on MBAs is that if you get a really good one, as in like one that employers look at, seek out, which would definitely include, you know, Harvard and INSEAD and LSE and probably Columbia as well, then that is worth it because employers really value that for whatever reason, even if it's just, you know, credentialism and it's, you know, it, it can pay off financially for the people who get it the that is not true i think for most mbas if you get you know some random mba from some school that no one's ever heard of i'm not sure it's an obviously good investment
1: so you're not judging the quality of what people learn you're just saying bottom line you can go to some specific hard to get into schools and if you do go into those schools you come out and you make lots more money
0: and, yeah, in terms of the quality of what people learn, as I say, there are a handful of MBAs that really do specialize in things like finance um, and give and teach transferable skills that are very – those particular skills are valued in certain industries. Um, but that number is even smaller than the number of top-tier MBA schools.
1: And there's also the argument that the networking at the, like, Harvard MBAs just, like, party for three years or something, and that's, like, somehow very valuable.
0: If you look at, like, the most successful CEOs, the most successful entrepreneurs, is it possible to find such people who have gone to Harvard Business School? Yes, but the vast majority of them didn't, right? It's certainly not necessary. Let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, did you bring a number this week?
2: My number is $2.52, $2.52. And that's the the average amount you would pay for a slice of cheese pizza in New York City in 2014. And we know this because a guy named Liam Quigley has an Instagram account called NYC Slice, where he's been tracking the price of cheese pizza for seven years now. And so the average now is $3 per slice. Um, and this sort of violates the New York City pizza principle which says that a slice of cheese pizza should be roughly the same cost as a one-way subway fare which is 275 right now. So pizza prices are outpacing MTA subway fare pricing right now.
0: Wait, I, wait, how much was the pizza? Is it more or less than 275? Yeah, it's uh, $3. Oh, it's $3 now. Oh. Okay. Yeah, close enough.
1: It doesn't even have it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, My number is 1.4 million, which is the number of English-language copies of Prince Harry's autobiography that was sold in two days. The first two days it was on sale. Um, kind of impressive, I'm going to say.
1: Can I just say, I want to ignore... <laughs> Prince Harry and his book and his wife and all of it. And every time I see a link about that book or Prince Harry or his wife, I read the story. <laughs> I could have done a segment on Harry and Meghan, no problem. Of course, we didn't because we're not going to pander to the the obvious interests of the public.
0: <laughs> we uh, don't give the people <laughs> what they want. And I feel want. bad.
1: I feel bad about it like when I read the story and I'm like and then he fell on his back and his necklace cut into his throat or whatever and I'm just like what am I doing or when I read like <laughs> and then he did psychedelics with Monica from friends I'm like again I why? just feel bad about yeah. myself but I keep reading them I just do I'm sorry why <laughs> why why
0: uh, yeah <laughs> um, we shall we shall put this behind us Emily by asking you for your number
1: Yes, my number. It is 6,248. Any guesses? No. No. Number of patents Samsung was awarded last year at the U.S. Patent Office. It is the first time since 1993 that IBM was not number one patent recipient in the United States. That is, according to IBM, deliberate. They're focusing more on open source and collaboration now. But they've were the leader for obviously quite a long time.
0: First time since when? 93. Interesting.
1: When I was famously running the IP magazine, I mean, IBM was like the gold standard for a company that knew how to profit from its patents and intellectual property. But I guess it's turning away a little bit from that strategy. I mean, it was number two. So.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for us this week. Unless you're a Slate Plus member, in which case you will hear us rant about tasting menus and restaurant economics. Um, we will be back next week with a wonderful episode with Felix Gillette, all about the media. Do let us know what you think about this, what you think about that, by sending emails to slate money at slate.com. If you want, you can thank Anna Phillips for producing, because she's awesome. And yeah, we will be back next week with more Sleep Money.